0: with the D20 Radio, your gamer's role. www.d20radio.com. Thought for the day: let salvation be your reward, and death be your craft.
1: Hello, Fire Drakes, and welcome to episode 68 of the Grimdark podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast about role playing in the 41st millennium you're using the gaming system created by Fantasy Flight Games. Each episode, we cover a different gaming system, and tonight will be Death Watch. But before we get too far into this episode, there's probably a few housekeeping topics. First off, I should point out that uh, I'm looking after my baby at the moment while my wife has gone out. So if you hear sounds of cooing or rattles in the background, you know what that's all about. It's not the mysterious sounds of the war. Uh, and also, uh, in terms of our gaming last fortnight, it's been quite a bit of gaming this last fortnight, like I gotta say. Yes. So let's start off with. So first off, I ran my Call of Cthulhu game. There we go. There goes the rattle. There we go. Uh, I ran my Call of Cthulhu game, which is the uh, Horror on the Orient Express, and this is our sort of uh, child-friendly game. So yeah, no, nobody in the group is uh, penalised for having to go and you know, sort out a, a child's nappy or whatever during the game. Everyone, everyone playing is. Parents of newborns. So, uh, what it's...
2: greater Cthulian horror can be than what's <laughs> inside a child's napkin.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And uh, I, I sort of made the joke that you know, go, going on how our pace has been so far, the the chronicle should speed up towards the end because most of the children would have moved out of home by then. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's really, everyone had fun. That's what's important. And yeah, you know, it's the, it's written on the tin what it's all about. Um, then I ran my Scion game, and this is literally the day after I did the, the Call of the, the game on the Saturday. The Sunday I ran my Sion game, and this was the end of my hero cycle.
2: Yep.
1: So this game's been going now since 2013. Uh, And if you're not familiar with White Wolf Scion, it breaks down into the three key lines. Hero, Demigod, and God. And I finished the storyline of the the hero cycle. Uh, I sort of had a few different outcomes that could happen. So I, I, I say with this group that... I don't plan too much because the group always surprises me, but I don't plan much with most groups, I'm going to say. Uh, and this particular group, though, is, is exceptionally so. So I sort of had an idea about where I wanted the campaign to end off, and I, I sort of created three possible outcomes. Uh, plus, what if the, if the group surprised me something else, then we could go with that too. But the options were make a deal with an NPC, and the NPC was offering pretty untenable terms, but it didn't really come up in the game for the PCs to think, well... Could we make a counter offer? You know, we we don't like his offer, so they, they they sort of wrote that off as not possible. But they, they didn't even
2: negotiate.
1: Uh, I mean, the, the NPC I, I, I thought I think I portrayed him as willing to negotiate, but uh, and I actually had an NPC say at the last session, like, have you actually offered him something different? And they're like, oh no, no, we haven't really. But unfortunately, they uh, they had <laughs>
2: committed to other lines. No,
1: no, it. what it was was this. This NPC was sort of in a, a love hate relationship with one of the PCs and to the point they were sort of like you know friendly antagonism and at at a meeting she pushed it by uh, by literally using a power that drained all of the NPC's will and then forced him into doing something like you know sort of a mind control thing yeah that's so so it, it went from friendly banter to oh my god this person's my enemy so that NPC pretty much
2: that they burnt their bridges yes. impressively.
1: <laughs> so yeah, Look, and, and to be honest, it was it was entirely in character because one thing the NPC had never done was refuse to answer a question, and this character was like, a I I must have all the secrets and such," you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, okay, so that was one option which got burned early on. Then the other option was there was going to be some sort of sacrifice. So either pretty much a PC or an NPC had to uh, had to lose their life at the end of that if they had if they couldn't make the deal.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and then that was sort of what the NPC was banking on. This this first one was. They were banking that that the players would be willing to make the sacrifice, or the characters would make the sacrifice. Therefore, they would go with his deal in some way. And so there was an NPC that was willing to sacrifice themselves. And this is an NPC I would established since the very first game of the campaign three years ago, and it's played a major part. And, and like I tried to make it pretty clear, this is a this is a, a this is a full-on thing. this is literally removed from the storyline. Dead, dead. Dead, that's it. Yeah, and uh, it's got to be somebody. And. I guess what I was looking to see was, did I create an NPC that was compelling enough that the players would consider, you know, putting them the characters would consider putting themselves forward? it? And, and to be honest, two characters both said that they would, or that you know, if 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 the, if the NPC didn't want to do it, then the the characters would basically as such, and and. I guess they're sort of working out with other players what they all felt and what the NPC felt. It felt right in the storyline for the NPC to sacrifice themselves. And look, at the end of the day, the game is about the PCs. So the fact that they all now survived to go on to the next arc is, you know, also I, I a, guess a positive, a positive for the story as well. But I mean, but what it was was a, I think I think an important scene. You know, it was it was a, it was an important thing for me as a GM to see that the players bonded enough with the character that. It was a, a big deal for them to lose this NPC as part of the, the scene. So it's always nice to sort of end that part of a chronicle on a high point and then sort of go into So I'm, I'm sort of planning it quite a different game going into the next cycle as well, which will start sometime next month. So, yeah. Uh, okay, so that was the Sunday. And then the Monday, we did our next session of our Dark Heresy Roll 20 game, um, which has been a while. Been a while between gigs. I think the last one was in January, and we're now in June. Uh, but we finally finished uh desolate um what's it called uh, uh desolation of the dead yeah uh, which is the adventure from the GM screen uh and, and to be honest the last last session was pretty much a on, single fight yeah i know two fights there was the thing on the boat first as well the thing on the yep. barge so uh, how do you think that one went
2: uh, i thought it went pretty well actually yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I, I discovered a new tool so we mentioned before on the show um tabletop audio is a good site where you can sort of get a sort of audio tracks. So they've now got, like, a soundboard program as well, which is Tabletop Audio Broadcast, where you can literally pick certain individual music elements or sound elements and put was them together. Was that one
2: which kept breaking down?
1: It did keep breaking down, yeah. It does say it's in beta. Yeah. Um, but, it, like, it was quite good. I mean, do, if you get a chance, if you check out either the audio on the website, which I'll talk about in a moment as well, uh, or the YouTube video, and just get the audio in the background, see what you think about the the mixing, how it goes with the yeah. various sound effects and sort of stuff like Early on, I was able to make sort of the monster that was getting closer raw, but then that sort of stopped working partway through as well. But yeah, certainly Tabletop Audio broadcast is, is pretty cool as well. Uh, and then finally, Friday night, we did the final session of our Black Crusade game. Yes. Uh, which ran really, really short. Even though every other session we've ever played has run really, really overtime. Uh, the GM sort of expected us to betray the major NPC, and the NPC expected as well there was going to be a big combat. And we didn't.
2: Yeah, we yeah. didn't because we'd already made that plan that the best way to betray him was to not, not betray him betray, because, yeah, because yeah. you'd expect it.
1: And you got to betray yourself yes. at one point. Yeah. You know, as, as a Xenxian worshipper, you found a way to betray yourself. and yeah, yeah it's, it's a long story. I won't go into the full details of the game. But no, it was, a, it was a good way to end. And all the characters apotheosized at the end. But I think that running through the, the Black Crusade side of it was, A, unrealistic because the characters would have had quite different... Approaches to not most that side and probably wouldn't have worked that well together. And B, I think that at least two of the players were not so much interested in the sort of more war game-y aspect of the yeah. uh, the Black Crusade part of it. So, yeah. um, and, and as as it's as it's standing this week, we actually plan to do our first session, of our road trader game. So that'll be yes. on Friday this week too. So a lot of gaming, you know, in, in the two weeks it'll be like two weeks from last Saturday to next Saturday, it'll be five games for me, three of which will be forty k. Yeah, which so,
0: is good.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> it. No complaints here. Uh, And I did mention the website as well. If you do look at our website, you may know it's sort of changed a bit recently. We've been getting just constant hacking attempts and the host is getting a bit annoyed at us about how much people are using our website to spam. It seems to be an issue with Joomla, like even though I've updated it all, whatever vulnerability exists is still there and I've tried making PHP changes and JSON changes and everything else to try and fix it and it just keeps coming back. So I've actually taken the main part of the site down, remove the Joomla code for the moment all the for podcasts are still there, so the RSS files are unaffected, the podcast files are unaffected, the audio-only version of the sh- um, the sessions are unaffected, so you'll still get all that to the website, it just won't be as pretty, and hopefully sometime in the next month or so, as I've got more time, I will rebuild the site from scratch with a later version of Joomla and get it, get it looking nice. So on to tonight's episode. Uh, it is a what episode, episode I mentioned before. We'll do our regular news section, uh, then we're going to talk about... Uh, crafting in Death Watch, uh, then we'll do a chapter discussion on salamanders, fits nicely with crafting, yep. uh, do our products and war gear, I'm going to do a quick review of Death Watch Overkill, uh, and also we'll talk about downtime as a space marine as well, uh, before we move on to our community section and finish off the show. Okay. So, let's get to beginning.
0: Command knowledge, accessing Imperial Archives.
1: Alright, let's do the news, and in FFG news, uh, nothing on the RP lines, no real surprise there, but... In general, FFG News, so they've announced a new war pack for uh, Conquest, which is the Warp Unleashed, and now this is the final war pack in the Death World cycle.
0: Right? Mm-hmm.
1: And at the same time, we saw an announcement that Enter the Jungle, which is the first warp pack in the Death World cycle, is now available. So I guess as it stands right now, we are announced up to the end of the current war pack cycle with no other RPG stuff, although there is still quite a bit going on with Warhammer Quest at the moment in the Fantasy line as well. Yeah. So, nothing really else from FFG at the moment. Uh, On the Games Workshop side, I noticed uh, that in the last fortnight, Games Workshop attended the licensing expo in Las Vegas, which apparently is an extremely expensive expo. And, you know, only really sort of high-grade companies go to look at what they can license. Um, They had a number of properties they're looking for licensees for uh including like some really old properties like remember dark future the sort of this, the oh, racing the, 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 the car, sort of car wars, wars that's not yeah. car wars yes yeah yeah, yeah. Been, they were looking for like licensing opportunities for dark future you know yeah, man of war um you know all these sort of properties and according to the site i saw on the booth i didn't go those are the pictures i saw on other sites they're looking for opportunities in video games entertainment apparel collectibles publishing and toys Wow. Yeah, so all the Warhammer lines are mentioned as well, obviously. And uh, although they, don't, they don't mention it by like Dark Heresy or O Trainer, they just mention it as like Warhammer 40k, Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah. That sort of stuff. You know, even stuff like um, Fury of Dracula, that sort of stuff, which is a board game that's recently FFG we did as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I'm to see what they, I mean, as you mentioned before, actually there's a YouTube video I will link to in the show notes as well that someone sent to me that's all about their new licensing strategy. And literally, they're going to their shareholders and saying, this is how we're going to make money now. Is by letting you know, charging people to use our properties and yeah. promote it far and wide. So, yeah.
2: well, the more people that use the properties, the more people that play a forty k video game, yeah. and then go, oh, I might. They walk past the Games Workshop store. They say, "Ah, oh, I know that from video games. I'll go in and have a look." Yeah, it's just advertising in a different way.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Eisenhorn Xenos um, was supposed to come out. Uh, you know, so Eisenhorn uh, Hereticus, or whichever the first Eisenhorn was we supposed to come out on PC last month, end of May, on Steam, uh, but they've delayed it now until August. That's what I'm, I'm sort of keen to see because they wanted it to be available on all platforms at once because it's going to be also iOS yeah. and, and Google Play as well. So and maybe, okay. maybe console, I'm not sure, but yeah, that's what I'm, I'm interested in. Also, Inquisitor Inquisitor which um, is going get released again. I'm looking forward yep, to yep, in that yep. line. In Battlefleet
2: Gothic, the Space Marines are here.
1: Oh, that's true, yes. Yeah, yeah, so they've announced it, yeah. the yep.
2: release of Tower.
1: Yep. So if, you, if you're if you an early adopter, you get Space Marines, I believe? If if you, you, you got, got Space marines,
2: marines for free. The early adoption end period's gone now. It okay. cost a couple of days ago.
1: Okay. So now
2: yeah. you have to actually pay for Space Marines. Yeah, and a
1: nice little to... cinematic they used to release it as well. It yeah. sort of shows all... The... Although Space Marines, from my recollection of Battlefield Gothic, really have two... Two ships. Two ships, yeah. Strike cruisers and hunter-class Hunter frigates. Yeah. And that's it, isn't it? That's what it really no, is. It
2: was... Um... No, it'd be three of them because there were hunter class frigates, there yep. were strike cruisers, and there were battle barges. Okay. And the battle barges, there, their big one.
1: Okay. Or maybe maybe it's a hunter class strike cruiser or something. Then the yeah. battle barge is the big one. That's that's the one that sort of got the weird front with the with the um like the docking bay at the very front. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Okay, that's the battle barge. Yeah. All right. Um, on Eternal Crusade news, uh, there's been a major update to the live server, which includes two new maps. Uh, plus, I've now made Eldar live for all players. So not just the founders now. Anyone can get in and actually start playing with the Eldar faction and try out on up to two new maps. So you get to sort of have the evasion. No one knows what they're doing. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's it for the news. So let's get into the main part of the show.
0: Okay. Knowledge is power. Hide it well.
1: So let's do our, our rules discussion. And I think we're going to do something a bit new this time. We're actually going to be talking a little bit about some house rules. Yes. Uh, because I thought... Every time we talk about Space Marine chapters, what, what's the one thing they all seem to have in common? They're excellent at crafting. That's it. That's it. And yet, crafting is something which is, especially in Death Watch, um, quite, I guess, neglected. Even though, I think, craftsmanship and, and war gear is such a big part of the um, uh, the Space Marine ethos as such. Yeah. Uh, so, to start off with, I want to break this down. That there's, there's two things we're looking at. One is crafting, and one is craftsmanship. Yeah. Okay, and craftsmanship is actually defined in Rules and Death Watch. It's on page 147 and 165 of the core book. Uh, now, if you've played the other systems like uh, Road Trader, Death Watch- sorry, Black Crusade, or whatever, you're familiar with the fact that you've got poor, common, good, and best quality. Yeah. Now, this doesn't really apply to Marines because Marines pretty much get best quality as standard. Yeah, They, they don't get given cast-off gear. Yeah, everything, everything they get is you know put together by expert artisans and such. So they now have standard quality which is equivalent of best pretty much which already has I guess the, the best stats already, already worked into it uh, then there is exceptional and then there is master crafted so in the, for example with, with weapons if it's exceptional it adds plus 1 damage uh, if it's a ranged weapon it gets the reliable trait there's no other benefit if it already has that by the way um, and if it's melee you get plus 5 weapon skill when wielding it um, if it's master crafted it's plus 2 damage ranged weapons never jam or overheat and melee weapons get plus ten weapon skill. Uh, if it's armor, exceptional exceptional armor gets plus one AP against the first attack in any round, which is pretty comp. It's pretty standard for it's good, good quality in yeah, yeah. other systems. I, yeah. I
2: mean, for the others, it's pretty much the same as good, but with extra damage.
1: That's it. Yeah. Um, and master crafted means that you halve normal weight and have plus one AP, which is basically the same as best. Best in most works. other systems. Yeah. That's it. Um, but I mean, that's really when it comes to what's available to you in the core book and any of the books really for. Um, uh, for Death Watch, that's almost the limit of what you've actually got as far as crafting or craftsmanship goes. Uh, so now I want to talk about our own takes on how you would do crafting, because I've certainly had times in the game where in all the sort of games, the players have got the trade skill and they want to use that to either, you know, improve something or build something from scratch. Yeah. So let's talk off sort of first off about upgrading items. And I guess one consideration here is the fact that and I read this on a discussion topic on the FFG forums, was to talk about what gear does a space marine actually own? And I guess if you're looking at canon, really not much. You know, a lot of the gear, like the armor, the weapons, that they are all chapter relics. You know, when that space marine dies, well, they're handed off. But they, while they, they've there are a, yeah. a few
2: things that are theirs. Like their combat knife is theirs. Okay, that combat knife won't go to someone else when they die. Yeah, yeah, it's just that it's not particularly useful <laughs> when you've got power swords and power fists and all that sort of thing a, a combat knife's a bit
1: eh that's it uh, so I mean the thing is while they have that gear especially in Death Watch where they are pretty much assigned that artificer armour you know, I think that marines still do go through a, a point of customising
0: no. their,
1: their war gear to an extent even on the same thing that it will be handed back when they're dead or when they yeah. you know, are no longer able to use it if they for example in Death Watch return to their own chapter so, you know, every bit of armour has, has a story. I, I liken this to the fact that I ha- we have a friend of ours who is a, a lawyer. And he recently uh, purchased rooms for his practice in the building next door to the Federal Law Courts in Australia. Yeah. Uh, now, that, this is very expensive. It cost him more than his house to buy an office-sized room, you know, to practice out of. Uh, but on the inside of the door of that room, there was a, a plaque on the on the door. And that plaque had the names of every single lawyer who had used that room who had subsequently gone on to become a judge. And that was what he, that's what he's hoping for in the future, you know. So, like, the, everybody has left their mark on this room, you know. Like, the, all the books that adorn the shelves, he didn't put them there. They all came with, with the room, wife. that sort of stuff, you know. It's, it's, it's like, it's the war gear of this lawyer as such. <laughs> and, I, and I guess it likens to how, how space rooms work, especially in, like, the Death Watch, where their posting here is a transient matter as well. They come and they go. Um, so let's say you're a GM running a Death Watch game and your players become aware of the fact there is exceptional and mastercrafted as options and they have a piece of equipment that they are very much attached to and they say to you I want to try and improve this Uh, let's let's just go first off just on the the rules in the main book so I'm I'm going to ignore a couple of the talents here for a second that appear in later books but how would you administer that as a GM?
2: well The first question is, what class are they? Because anyone other than a tech priest trying to mess around with a plasma pistol (laughs) is breaking enough of the sort of tenets of the faith that they're going to get censured for even doing it. Yeah. So you have to keep that in account. What are they trying to work on and what are they? Yeah. If if they've done their training and they're they're a tech marine, no worries. Let Let them go at it, whatever it is. If they're anyone else really they should probably consider asking a tech pre, you know a tech priest or a tech marine to do it for them? yeah that's um, my first and only real piece of advice <laughs> in this regard:
1: yeah I mean I suppose there is a point of view of, of depends on what the customization is yeah. if, if it's purely cosmetic
2: if, if they're changing the handle or the, or the trigger guard, yeah, yeah no worries yeah if they're trying to tool it up so that it produces more damage, no. Simply put, no. <laughs> you, to do that, you're going to have to fiddle with the insides. There, there's nothing you can do to a gun to make it do more damage without fiddling with the insides of a gun.
1: Oh, I can change ammunition, but that's not really modifying it, is it? So Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's imagine they are a tech priest now. And, okay. they, and they do have trade armourer, um, and they want to actually and They've got anything. tech use,
2: obviously. Yeah, that's it, Yeah, They'd be a pretty useless tech marine if <laughs> they didn't have a trade armour. Uh, okay, so... I suppose first things first is they need to get parts for it. They need to get a pattern for it. They need to work out the correct rituals and rites and prayers to say while they do it.
1: Yeah, so everything I'm hearing so far is really a role-playing... It's all based role-playing based so yeah, stuff. Because yeah. there is no acquisition system in Death Watch as such. So. No, there isn't. Yeah, I mean, this information is either available to Marines or it's not. Yep. It may You may have to go... You, know, you cert- may even
2: have to, you know, do some favours for someone to get hold of this information. You may have to apprentice under a higher level... Yeah. tech marine to get this information.
1: That's it. And then I think at this point in time it really comes down to the fact you have got those skills like, you know, tech trade trade armour, for example. And I would be saying, okay, as a GM, I think that modifying this piece of equipment from common quality to exceptional quality is going to require a certain number of success, a certain number of degrees of success yep. as an extended series of tests.
2: Extended series of tests.
1: Yep. Each role is an hour. Oh, I, I didn't go for that. I'd probably say that you can roll once to accumulate successes between missions. Between each set of Yeah, you know, the, the, the idea is that you know they don't have a lot of time to spend. And we'll be talking about Danton later on, and spend crafting and such. But I think that the whole point is that there's such reverence applied to the concept of modification that to go from something that is already best quality to something that is exceptional, this is like it, it, it's like painting a work of art. Yeah. yeah it has to happen over a long period of time you, you may say for example that it requires 10 degrees of success uh, which is you know if you have lots of bonuses actually achievable in a single in a single role potentially if you can get rack enough to, to get your full plus 60 uh, but you may say I'd probably look at for example the the renown requirement in order to get it because uh, the renown not only goes to the strength of the weapon but also its rarity
0: yeah.
1: and its complexity. Yeah. So you know, if you are trying to get, you know, a, a, a multi, you know, trying to try to talk of metal or something that requires a high, higher renown, you know, or or Terminator armor, for example, then that is something that is a work of ages, almost. Yes. You know, and it should be requiring, you know, oh, that, thirty, absolutely. forty degrees of success.
2: The only concern is with working on one of these items. You can't really use it in the games while you're working on it. If you've stripped down the engine of your Terminator armor and you're you're tooling around in it, yeah. you can't really just throw it back together and start using it again the next day.
1: Yeah, well, that, 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 that's that's a choice the character may have to make. Yeah, in order to in order to do this as such. Or you may say that um, provide they get enough degrees of success on the roll, they can sacrifice say two degrees of, of progress in order to ensure that the gear is still functional for their current mission as such. You know, they, they've taken it out, they've. Fold some parts down. They have made some changes. They put in a new power cell, but they had to put it back together and go on a mission. And they can now resume that when they when they finish office when they finish that mission.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that that sounds like a fair fair enough thing. And I think you're right. The the more I suppose powerful the item is to start with, yeah, the harder it is. It should be the roles to to modify. So you know, if you're modifying a power fist or a lightning claw. It yep. should be a higher difficulty level than modifying a combat knife. Yes. Yeah, you know, a combat knife, probably probably your tech use role or your trade armor role is going to get a couple of pluses just for how basic a weapon it and is. And it even just
1: comes down to the availability of parts. Yeah. You know, I'd almost look at, if you had other books like, like mm-hmm. um, uh, Rogue trailer with you, you could look at their, their rarity and use the acquisition test difficulty as a modifier on the, the trade test in order to, in order to do it. You know, so. Yeah, that. That
2: would in, in a game like Road Trader, that's actually how I do the crafting roles. I think that'd be the best way.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's it. Um, okay, what about a player that says, look, what I want doesn't exist, I want to build it fresh. Th- that, that, I think, is a, a different story. That's, uh, there's a few reasons for that. Starting off with, there are reasons that are in, in canon as such. Gear is not just invented daily in the Imperium, even by individuals as exceptional as Space Marines. Yeah, uh, This is why we have the concept of patterns... Uh, and standard templates, that sort of stuff, is that, that the, the knowledge required to manufacture a complex equipment from scratch uh, or design the equipment is really not available in the Imperium. Yeah. And, and the question would be, like, you know, mm-hmm. given that the Emperor provides and that the Imperium provides everything that these soldiers should need, whether they're Imperial Guard or Space Marines, is once you started gathering components to do something like this, people start saying, well, why are you doing that? Surely there's something that existed already you know, that already sit, meets that need or at least meets it close enough, or two things together will do what you want to do with that one heretical piece of equipment you actually want to try and build there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, players may persist. They may say, look, I've just got this. You know, I, I, I need to have, you know, a vortex grenade is enough. I need a vortex bomb or something that, you know, it's like it's supposed to be a melted bomb and a vortex grenade. Um, <laughs> no, um, a lightning claw with a flamer <laughs> on the back of it. Yeah. I was the example of a Dark Heresy game a uh, a Road game tra- um, uh, a Power Fist with the mono quality.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yes. so
1: that it was still sharp when it was not active.
2: <laughs> it's called lightning claw. <laughs> That's
1: it. Uh, anyway, uh, I guess that it comes down to really GM controlling to so, say look if you want to do that Okay, it's going to have these stats, and the GM's got to sort of decide what they think is fair. And the complexity to build it is going to be this, and it should be high. Should be very high. It should be very high. It should be, you know, sort of getting towards the nigh impossible, like the minus 60 base to literally invent something new from scratch.
2: Uh, Another thing to keep in mind with modifying gear or building gear is relics as well. Yeah. I don't think you should ever let a player try and modify a relic.
1: What about if you give players a relic which is no longer functional? And they want to restore it to function. Try and
2: restore it to function. Um, I mean, you're going to be looking at some pretty arduous tests, but I think that's worthy of of several game sessions. Yeah. They may have to go look for for Death Watch missions that meet the requirements they need. Oh, have you got any Death Watch missions on a Forge World, maybe?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Uh, Okay, well, there's a couple of talents here that they've added in that I think, are worth noting when it comes to gear. First one is signature war gear. And this is from yeah. the main book. This implies that your character has a piece of war gear that is literally theirs. Something that is associated with them directly, that they own or that they are they now hold on to, which is their assigned gear. And I guess if a player went to me and said, look, I really want to build something from scratch. You know, I want to have my own bolter, whatever that I have you know, lovingly restored from a wreck I found that was from a you know from a fallen brother once that you know yeah. sung out to me for whatever reason. I'd say, okay, I'm happy for you to do that, but take Sinatra War Gear. And the reason it's your war gear is because you have restored that, you have, you know, raised the level that's required. You know, and if you have enough renown, like you with the normal Sinatra War Gear trait, you could take it as a more powerful variant as well. Yeah. Uh, the other option is the Artificer talent. Right? And this talent is introduced in first founding. It's actually in the Salamanders chapter as well. Uh, and allows you to... You take the talent and the piece of war gear that you are regularly assigned or a signature for you now becomes uh, exceptional. And if you take the talent again, you can also make another piece of gear exceptional. Or you can make the exceptional piece of gear mastercrafted. Yeah. So there are mechanical rules which require the expenditure of experience points to raise the level of gear... And I'd say that they
2: bypass the need to make all the difficult roles and exactly jump right. through yeah. all the other hoops. But keep in mind that that means if they are doing it themselves with difficult rolls and jumping through hoops, they're essentially bypassing spending experience.
1: That's it, yeah. and yeah. If you do it, it's like an elite advance because it only really appears in the Salamanders uh, purchasing chart. They, yeah. you, know, you say you're charging like 1,000 XP for a rank. You know, that's 2,000 XP to get a piece of gear to crafted. So that's a, that's a big chunk. Yeah. To, to bypass with roles. It would need to be across multiple sessions.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, like lots of sessions, definitely, to get something master mastercrafted. Uh, I mean, really, that, that's... I, I, I know a lot of players that say that these skills exist, I should be able to do something with it. It happened a lot during our Road Trader game. Um, we had a person... We had one player that was exceptionally skilled at crafting and re- really wanted to be able to improve their armor, improve the group's weapons, you know, build stuff from scratch. And it, it is, I think, an important part. Once again for marines where war gear is so significant just look back to the scene in ultramarines where one of the marines sits there carving you know die heretic into every one of his bolts before it uh, gets fed into his into his bolter as such you know it's it's a the reverence of war gear is a big part of their pseudo religion basically yeah um and i think being able to modify gear especially as a tech priest um or as a as a chapter like the salamanders which reveres the concept of the forge and the and the Development or of technology. Iron Hands. Or Iron Hands, definitely. Or, or a, Blood Angels. Blood or it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on, Salamander's got to be the most. The, yeah. Most, uh, like, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Iron Hands, maybe modifying vehicles, I don't know. I like and Cybernetics, like <laughs> it? yeah. Cybernetics, that's true,
2: And Blood Angels, if they're making it look pretty but not really changing anything about yeah, it. That's
1: right, yeah. It's an all the aesthetic side of it. Yeah, they're, they're the ones that are going to put Die into their boulder. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just some thoughts that, you know, some ways that Jimmy might be able to give players the opportunity to do that without. I'm balancing the game too much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh all right, well, let's f- finish up with this bit and move on to talking about a group which actually does do a lot of crafting.
0: Okay. All subjugants report to the administrator for career assignment.
1: So, let's talk about Salamanders. Yeah. And I got to say like I mean, I when I've made Ultramarine armies, um I, and I thought about just, well, we really just doing Ultramarines, Ultramarines is really basic, and I thought if I was going to do another chapter what I like to do. And, and I think Salamanders I quite like, you know, yeah. I, I I like the colour scheme, um, especially if you've seen some of the pictures of their legion armour.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, when they had like this, is like the chainmail yeah. um, neck guards and stuff. You know, I think like they look really good. Cool.
2: The, the Horus Heresy models for the Salamanders look brilliant.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think that they're they're a really cool looking army. I like some of the lore behind them as well. I mean, I think you were saying in the break, Mike, that you call them sort of the paladins of the Space Marines. Oh, and, yeah, they are, uh, really. And, and, if
2: all of the legions had been like the Salamanders, they wouldn't have been a Horus no. <laughs> Erasing.
1: And, you know, like, if I'm a D&D player, you make a paladin, you know, so yeah. that they, they, they do fit quite well with my with my gaming style yeah. as well.
2: It's very clear-cut that they're the good guys in a lot of the lore and the books when, yeah. when they appear, yeah.
1: All right, well, let's talk about the Salamanders by their history first off. Uh, now... Before they were known as the Salamanders, they were known as the Dragon Warriors, or, or the 18th Legion, basically, like most legions were known. Um, the formation of their gene seed is actually one that's been shrouded in a bit of mystery. So there were effectively three of the legions, being um, the Salamanders, uh, the 6th Legion, which was the Space Wolves, and the 20th Legion, which was the Alpha Legion, were selected by the Emperor and his closest aides to be somewhat distanced from the other legions. You yeah. Know, they, they were sort of regarded as proto-legions or a, a, a varied experiment. No one, really knows, no one really knows why. No one knows what the goal of this was. Well, but...
2: we know the goal for two of them. Yeah. The, the Space Wolves were the executioners, so that any legion that ever did something wrong, it was the Space Wolves who went and fixed it by yes. exterminating them. Yeah, And with the Alpha Legion, they were... It's sort all of the spies. Yes, they were it. always going to be the spies. So, Look at history.
1: looking at the Salamanders, I suppose you could say that their secret purpose was to root out evil, to, yeah. to fight, to find the evil in in in, um, in mankind and, and root it out, basically. So, yeah. uh, but that that still is a it's speculation, not not really known as such. Um, the the Dragon Warriors themselves distinguish themselves significantly in war before they were united with their Primarch. Um, most notably of which was they they participated in the assault at the Tempest Galleries during the Unification Wars where their numbers were basically absolutely wiped out down from 26,000 to only 1,000 remaining Legionnaires. Um, But they they won the day, and it's a new amount of honour for such losses. And uh, they were able to uh, to regrow again uh, quite quickly. Uh, And following that, they sort of became known for a doctrine of dealing with Sudden threats, so things like space hulk incursions, xenos pirates—you know anything where they didn't, really, yeah—they they, they didn't really get to set the terms of where they wanted to do battle. They they did battle where battle needed to be done right now. Yeah, that was their thing. Um, so meanwhile, while this is all going on, you know, the who, the, the man that will become their Primarch, uh, Vulcan, uh, ended up scattered by the warp, as all the Primarchs were, to the world of Nocturne,
2: which fortunately, as luck would have it, has dragons.
1: Yeah. Convenient <laughs> salamanders they're called salamanders in the world yeah. uh, so Vulcan as a child was taken in by uh, a blacksmith by the name of Nibel, uh, and he basically proceeded to teach Vulcan the ways of the forge uh, and Vulcan as most primarchs do grew into a, a gigant, giant of a man you know tactically brilliant exceptional uh, craftsman exceptional craftsman you know he, soon he was the greatest smith on Nocturne to the point that you know others would travel to him To learn about the new techniques he'd discovered uh, at the forge, basically. Um, But the world itself, Nocturne, was subject to regular Dark Eldar raids uh, to the point that the entire populace pretty much had, like, you know, a a raid system where the moment they knew the Dark Eldar were coming, everyone would go to bolt holes and hide, you know, caves, under houses, you know, everyone knew to sort of get away from the Dark Eldar. And the first time the Dark Eldar attacked, while Vulcan was on the world, he basically refused to to hide. You know, he stood in the middle of town with his two hammers and decided to take on the, the Dark Eldar on his own. And his example basically inspired the other people of that particular city. And so they also came out and fought the Dark Eldar. And for the first time ever, the Dark Eldar raid was repulsed by, by Vulcan and the, and the people that decided to stand beside him. And in order to celebrate this, the the people of Nocturne decided to put together a celebration along with competitions and games. And it was at this point that a... I'm going to use inverted commas here. You can't really see the radio, but it's a pale stranger of outlandish appearance uh, arrived on Nocturne and basically boasted that he could best anybody in any challenge. Uh, Now, at the end of the day, the, the the... the people of Nocturne didn't believe that anybody could beat Vulcan in anything, you know, whether it was strength or you know, crafting or endurance and stuff. But uh, a, a wager was formed between Vulcan and the Stranger that whoever won the contest after eight days, the loser would basically swear fealty to them and serve them uh, indefinitely as such. And so these the uh, Vulcan and the Stranger took part in contests of intellect, strength, you know, endurance, etc., and every single contest for the entire eight days was uh tied there was there was no clear winner uh, and so on the final day they worked out we'll have one last contest uh and that will be that each person will forge their own weapon and then take that out and hunt the largest salamander they could possibly find these you know these sort of giant drakes that were on Nocturne uh and so Volcan went off his own into the sort of the um volcanic wastes and he took down this giant salamander with his hammer and as he was carrying it back a nearby volcano erupted and the force of that sort of threw Vulcan off the edge of a cliff and he sort of caught him with one hand and he had the the body of the salamander in the other but he couldn't get up and uh, the stranger who was also returning with his prize saw that um, Vulcan was in trouble and so he threw his own um, salamander into the lava to create a, a bridge to run across to Vulcan which he did and then pulled Vulcan up onto the uh, onto the rocks saving his life and as the, sort of the stranger's Salamander melted in the lava Vulcan could see that the stranger had actually found had killed an even larger Salamander than he had uh, when they got back to town because the stranger had no prize the, the audience declared Vulcan the winner but Vulcan still Neil before the stranger and declared him the the winner of the contest and swore to feel that's uh, what swore to uh, to serve him. At that point, you know the sort of the, the illusion of who the stranger was fell and it was revealed to be the god emperor of mankind, uh, and thus they were reunited. So, h- h- how do you feel about that as an origin story, Mike? Is a
2: <sighs> really do you, do you want my <laughs> honest opinion? <laughs>
1: it, it's funny, really, because it's one of the few where the Either the Emperor's holding back or he wasn't vastly superior from the get
0: go. Yeah. Yeah, so.
2: I have to say, to be honest, I think the stories of the Emperor being as fantastic and wonderful as he is are vastly overrated. Yeah. I don't think he really was as awesome as all that. <laughs> honest, I, I just don't. I think he was probably a bit better than the Primarchs, but not yeah. a lot. Yeah. And I think that over time those stories have been misconstrued and embellished. Yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, anyway, um, Vulcan didn't actually go to his legion straight away. He chose to, or with, I don't know whether he chose to or whether he was directed to. He stayed with the Emperor for some time, actually training under the Emperor's tutelage, um, and, and also fighting alongside him. Uh, so it wasn't until midway through the Great Crusade that uh, Vulcan actually went to the, uh, the 18th Legion, and they were subsequently renamed to the, um, uh, the salamanders basically in honour of the beast that they'd fought that they'd actually won the, the contest for as well um, so during the uh, the great crusade uh, they in a number of various conflicts at a couple of points they came to blows with the night lords so they were you know, fighting alongside the night lords and uh, Vulcan didn't like Conrad Kurz's Tactics.
2: Didn't like his style.
1: Didn't like his style, no. It started off the, 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 the day that Kurz wiped out an entire village in order to create fear in the remaining villages and such. You know, Vulcan didn't go in for that sort of stuff. Um, he decided that he was going to report Kurz for his indiscretions. He was uh, going to
2: tell on him to dad. Uh, no, no, no. To
1: Horus. Yes. To Horus. He wasn't going to was going to Horus with the story. Yeah. Um, in fact, actually, uh, there, was a, there was a thing where he had witnessed Kurz killing a Xenos child, and felt that was, that was uh, too harsh, despite the fact it was a Xeno, a, a basically. Anyway, so he went to Horus, and at this point, Vulcan could already sense there was something dark happening in Horus, um, and he wasn't going to get satisfaction about Kurz. and you know, ready for his first meeting with, with Horus, he'd actually crafted a you know master-crafted hammer known as the Dawnbringer that he planned to give to Horus as a gift, Mm-hmm. Uh, but when he saw the, Hor- the darts and Horus's soul, he decided to to keep it, keep it for himself. Yeah, he didn't. He decided not to give it to Horus. Um, so once the Hor- once the heresy started, Vulcan was present uh, during the Isfahan Five Drops Lake massacre. Um, so he survived the initial nuclear bombardment because he's one of these weird characters in 40k that is just functionally immortal. Now, yeah. literally, nothing at all can kill him, it, 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 even the most severe injury he will regenerate from, including nuclear bombardment. Yes, uh, And he was subsequently set on, set on by uh, Legionnaires of the Iron Warriors and Night Lords, and eventually knocked unconscious and, and taken prisoner by Kurz. Um, so Kurz then attempted to break both Vulcan's mind and body. Um, he created psychic escapes for him where he constantly failed to protect innocents. You know, he cut his head off um, ripped his throat out, tore, tore him limb from limb, set him on fire. I think some of the more extreme things were he, like he, he pushed him into the um, the exhaust of a ship, like a, of, a, of, a, of a void ship's rockets as such, you know. Uh, and, and everything he did, he, uh, he regenerated <laughs> he from. He came it, back here. from, yeah. That's right. Um, which annoyed Kurz to no end. Uh, and I think the final thing he did was Kurz teleported him to the upper atmosphere of mccrag so he'd burn up in re-entry falling to the service of Macrae. And, um, which, is, it doesn't seem that much worse than being in a, in the rockets of a, of a void ship. I don't know. It...
2: Doesn't seem much worse than getting hit by a nuclear weapon, but there <laughs> you go. True. Um,
1: or getting your head cut <laughs> off. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, uh, he did survive falling to the surface of Macrae, but he was effectively unconscious so that when the Ultramarines found they, he, he was, they weren't sure whether he was a charred body or a statue of obsidian pretty much. Like, um, it took him a while to recover from that one and after he did there were a couple of things so first off he was maddened by all the attempts to break his mind and somehow the effects that Kurz had use him meant they were somehow linked so um, Vulcan could sense the presence of the Night Haunter, and decided you know he, he literally stole weapons from the armory of McCrag to go hunting for uh, for Conrad Kurz yeah um, and although sort of Kurz was sort of fated to fight Vulcan. It was actually uh, another man um, named uh, John Grammaticus, a member of the Cabal, a Psyker, who is another functionally immortal uh, immortal person, who had managed to get his hands on something called the Fulgurite, which was effectively a a calcified or, I guess, um, petrified bolt of the Emperor's own psychic energy. And he was originally supposed to to give that to um, Kurz to defeat um, uh, Vulcan, because only a Primarch was was allowed to or were able to defeat a Primarch, but Grammaticus was convinced by others that he should try and kill Vulcan himself. Uh, so he was able he fought Vulcan and he was able to plunge the bolt into Vulcan's heart, uh, and they both died in the conflict. But because um, Grammaticus being a mortal, regenerated as well, um, and Vulcan's body was recovered by the Ultramarines, who once again assumed he was either dead or mostly dead. Uh, put him in a stat- status container. They called the um, the Unbound Flame. I think it was called or the Bound Flame, maybe. And uh, subsequently, he was repatriated back to Nocturne, where he was healed in the fires of Mount Deathfire, which is <laughs> brilliant, brilliantly named mountain, definitely. I have um, to say, yep, it
2: sounds terrible when you short note the the story,
1: <laughs> uh, but. Because he was healed in the fires of Mount Deathfire, his mind was also restored, so he no longer oh. was manned. Um, but he subsequently left the salamanders. He, he basically said that he was going to, out to disappear into the universe, and he would return at the end of times. And that was the last time uh, um, um, Falcon was ever heard of. Yeah. So he's not one of the dead Primarchs, though he has been dead multiple, multiple times. Uh, but he's Well, also... he's definitely not one of the dead Primarchs, because he can't die. <laughs> That's it. Uh, anyway, so the remainder of the Salamanders uh, basically uh, fought a war of vengeance against those that had wronged them during the end of the Horus Heresy. Uh, they were later um, reorganized as per the Codex Astartes, but Vulcan had, had often expressed uh, disinterest or distaste for the Codex Astartes, uh, and the numbers was, were reduced, so they only managed to form seven companies of 100 men. Uh, and for that reason, there have allegedly been no subsequent. Uh, succession foundings of the Salamanders—they've they've never been large enough to need to be sp- to be split off as of such because they're engaged in such regular, sudden combat. Their numbers are always sort of going up and down yeah. um, over time. Uh, since the Horus territory they have continued to distinguish themselves in in warfare. The most probably the most notable wars they were involved in were the Second and Third Wars of Armageddon. Um, and uh, as a sort of aside to the Codex Astartes, uh, they sort of formed an internal tenet of belief known as the Promethean cult, which is a sort of belief in self reliance, self sacrifice and loyalty. Yep. So that's the the background of the salamanders. <laughs> it's quite a bit. You can see why sort of one might call them the the, the the paladins of the of the space marines. Um, so what role does a salamander play in the Death Watch? You know, what what are the sort of things that they bring along? Uh fire. Fire, definitely. Flying weapon use is a a big part of their combat doctrine. Um, Also, close combat, particularly with hammers. Uh, And I guess the third thing is the fact they are master craftsmen, like anyone else, but uh, to the point that it's sort of like what they are known. It's not just like all members of this this, um, chapter are quite good at crafting. It's like this chapter is known for its crafting ability, basically. Uh, When it comes to actually building a salamander, their base statistics are plus five toughness, plus five intelligence. Yep. Um they get the Fireborn solo ability and the Promethean Cult demeanor, which fits that, that ideal about how they should live. So their solo squad mode abilities. is Fireborn. This is actually really awesome, this one, I've got to say. Yeah. Uh, first off, the, rank, the, the base power means that you add Proven 2 to any issued or signature war gear, or you remove the unreliable, unbalanced, or unwieldy quality of the weapon. Yeah. So this allows them to wield these big hammers, and parry, and, with and them. still parry with them, basically, like as well. They parry with a power fist. That's <laughs> it, yeah. Um, so that, that itself is pretty cool. Yeah. Now, now, usually we talk about these abilities. I only really focus on the rank 1s. But the other ones, so rank 2s, pretty much they are immune to catching on fire. Uh, and the rank 3 one was... Um, oh, whenever they deal fire damage, it becomes 2d10, not 1d10.
0: Yeah.
1: So this is a pretty cool solo ability, I've got to say. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: all right, then you've got their squad attack, which is called Into the Fires of Battle. Uh, which means that when, you, you activate it, all so the character and all squadmates in support in um, support range can make an immediate half move, followed by two standard attacks. And as it gets to high levels, you can also make two burst attacks as well. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty nice. <laughs> That's it. Um, and their squad defense um, is under the anvil of war. So once again, the character and all squadmates in support range may elect to gain plus two toughness bonus. For the duration of its activation, but they halve their agility bonus for the purposes of movement. Yeah, so they they, yeah, they pretty much go like back that walk forward and shoot thing we were talking about before with
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> with a thousand suns, thousand suns or yeah. So, so I think that's a pretty good set of abilities for these. Yeah, ones, really, they yeah.
2: are
1: they're, they're good all round. Yeah, the, well, wait till we get to the psychic powers. That's, yeah. that's they really shine as well. Uh, okay, so the progression chart they get common law tech, all the way to plus twenty tech use to plus twenty. So yeah, you know, fantastic uh, tech tech priest as such. Um, that's the new skills I get though everything else now is talents so they get cleanse and purify duty to death good reputation any hammer blow hatred dark eldar they can take artificer three times that's what we mentioned before that's you upgrade the quality of gear um, peer any signature war gear talented intimidate and talented trade armor yeah so you know if you want to do crafting these are certainly ones to be looking at doing it with definitely uh, they're chapter trappings they either get the promethean sigils which the options are either plus two on initiative or plus three on all tech use tests or plus two on strength. Not strength bonus, strength. Yeah. Um, or they can have the um, the Vigil uh, Brazier, uh, which after you finish a mission, for every point of renown you, you gain, you roll a d10. And on a 10, you actually gain an additional point of renown. Which is pretty good. That's pretty good, yeah. So I'm liking these guys so far, i got to say. Um, Then we got the psychic powers, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. So, I only get four psychic powers. Oh, no. But But they're all pretty powerful, yeah. yeah. Okay, so Fury of the Salamander creates a one meter wide by 2d10 times your side rating long beam attack, basically. Um, All creatures struck will take 3d10 plus 5 damage with a penetration equal to the side rating unless they make a plus zero dodge test. And anyone injured by this but not killed has to make a fear one test as well. Yeah. So it's only drawback really is that it's 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 a plus zero dodge test. So anyone who's quite agile will get out of the way. But anyone But not, it can be up to a two kilometer long beam. Two kilometers like it's two to ten meters times rating. Yeah. So it'd be twenty meters twenty. Twenty
2: meters times Oh yeah, yeah two hundred
1: meters. Ah oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Okay.
2: So. <laughs> Damn
0: it.
1: Um still it's
2: two hundred <laughs> meters uh oh. oh no.
1: <laughs> that's it. Uh, then they got um heat of the furnace. Uh, which is anyone, friend or foe, within your side rating meters uh, must pass a plus zero toughness test or take a level of fatigue. You also add your side rating to all melee attacks, and foes struck by melee attacks by you must roll agility or be set on fire. Yep. That's pretty cool. Yep. Nocturne's fire. Anyone within five times your side rating in meters Um. Suffers 1d10 times your psi rating energy damage with a pen of 4 and must test agility minus 10 or catch on fire. Every turn you sustain this, you increase your effect of surrounding by 1, thus increasing the range, thus increasing the damage. Here's where it gets a little bit confusing because it says once the total damage exceeds your willpower, you must sustain the power. So, because basically the fires burn out of control. Yeah. So, first off, I wonder if that's the total damage that you've accumulated so far. Uh, no, I'd say it's
2: probably your per-turn damage.
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, that being said, if you're rolling... It's like Holocaust. Yeah, if you're rolling 1d10 10 times 10 anyway, it's probably going to be get buggy willpower. But, but then, so you've got to sustain... Eventually you get to the point where you have to keep sustaining it. Now.
2: Yeah, I mean, which means someone has to shoot you to stop it. <laughs>
1: or knock you unconscious. Yeah, and would you say, like it says that's one to the effective side rating, would you stop it at 10? Or would you let it go beyond that, you know? Yeah, this, this is because Because those... you're, you're immune to it, and you can't move while you're channeling this power. Yeah. So, yeah. So
2: eventually, you burn everything. <laughs> yeah, it's like Holocaust. It's <laughs> like Holocaust that doesn't damage you. Yeah. <laughs> and does more damage.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so, it's, a, it's, a, it's 2,500 yeah. XP, though, for that power. So. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. worth it. <laughs> yeah. and it's friend, friend or foe, too. So, it really, it really goes off the sort of individual achievement thing of... Oh, but, but
2: it's okay, because uh, if they do catch on fire, they're taking 2d10 fire damage <laughs> instead of 1d10. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, and last one is Vulcan's Anvil, uh, where you activate it, you gain a force field with a strength equal to 5 times your sight rating, and no overload. Which is pretty damn good Which as 10, well. Yeah. Uh, now, the Primark's Curse is called Unyielding. This one is, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. So, at rank 1... Um, you must make a plus ten willpower test any time you want to change your mind. I can see this becoming an argument point between a player and a GM. Like, what's changing my mind? You know, does it have to be like, ah, oh, I um, you know, I I was going to have eggs for breakfast, but now I'm having bacon instead. Do I have to make a willpower test for that, or is it like literally decisions that matter? Um, it, I'd hate to sit there as a GM saying, oh, no, you got to make a test that I make a test for that for just really piddly stuff that's not important to the game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's up to the player to play someone who is just doggedly I'm going to do this it's eggs don't talk about bacon I'm having eggs yeah um, uh, at level 2 you automatically reduce to kill team cohesion by 2 because you're just such a man alone so self-sufficient so self-reliant yeah um, and at rank 3 this is what gets pretty bad uh, first off it changes the test from rank 1 to a minus 20 willpower test to change your mind and you no longer gain any benefit from squad mode abilities activated by other members of the squad Yeah, that's pretty harsh. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) given that like some of the other ones from other chapters are like, you must role play your character this way. This (laughs) is
2: yeah, but you've got to look at all the other things. They get a lot more powerful than that, so the the flaws have to balance out against the the
1: advantages. Um, Now there are no alternate specialities designed specifically for Salamanders in the books. Um, I would suggest maybe you consider substituting um, first company veteran. As, uh, a, like a, for a fire drake, basically, because fire drakes are, uh, you know, that's basically what the terminators of the Salamanders are known as, and yeah, um, they're, they're probably an alternate form you can sort of just rename it, but otherwise, it's not one existing. And successive chapters, once again, because it's rumored they never had any, um, there are none in the books. There are sort of stories that indicate that the, the storm giants and the black dragons have a very similar combat doctrine to the Salamanders, they may secretly be of that chapter's line as such but that's not confirmed at all so yeah um I guess there's some final tips on how to play a Amanda. I'd say um think about the tenets of the Promethean cult you know it's all about um I I I should be able to um not only sustain myself and you know rely on myself and be a single person but also be loyal to those around me yeah it's an important thing to for that sort of individual achievement side um also, remember that uh, sort of the concept of Vulcan are that they're there to protect uh, and fear is not something that Vulcan ever liked using as a weapon. He hated it when, when um, uh, the that. Now, they will intimidate. You know, at the end of the day, their obsidian skin and flaming eyes is enough to stop most wars and such, but they are, they're not there to create terror. Yeah. They're, they're, they're there to cow opponents into submission, basically. Uh, and finally I guess as a as a, um, a, a chapter based on the forge you know try to create something lasting you know try to have your character leave behind some you know physical legacy of, of their own um, making as such that, that is a big part of what they work towards in their time in the Death Watch yeah I agree with that stuff yeah. any other thoughts for those other makers
2: um only the for additional you know career choices You if you do start to get quite far down the um the curse of your founder, yep. you might want to consider the Kill Murray. Yeah, that's Just true. because yeah. it does let you activate your own powers on your own, just on you. Yeah. And it does fit in very well with the, the whole self-sufficient...
1: That's true, yeah. What about, mm. what about um, Dreadnought? Dreadnought? Oh, yeah, <laughs> they could probably make a pretty good Dreadnought. <laughs> that's it, yeah, with a multi melder and... <laughs> Heavy flame and power fist. <laughs> that's it. Okay, let's keep going.
0: Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by TO RECEIVE ORDERS
1: Alright, a plot hook. Here's what i got for you, Mike. Um, the kill team has recently been sent on a mission to recover a mighty artifact of the Astartes, a weapon forged by a great Artificer of Legend. The item was recovered, however in the process the kill team learned that some aspect of the weapon's history was incorrect. Perhaps it was crafted by another, or perhaps profane practices or materials were used in its construction. What lengths will the kill team go to in order to expose the truth, or disprove the evidence they presented with. Okay. So here, like, we're talking about crafting. So I thought that, you know, given how much emphasis is placed on war gear and its history, um, what does it mean for Marines to actually find out there's been some mistake there? You know, what if, what if potentially, you know, a, a great master craft of the chapter, or someone who's now long dead but is revered, is found to have used techniques that are prescribed by the Imperium, you know, or... Yeah, you know, what if there was proof that they actually never created it in the first place? And you know, is there some oaths upon the, the kill team to try and find the evidence of who did and make sure that reverence is paid, reverence is due? Yeah, um, I quite liked the scenes in uh, the Ultramarines movie where they are doing the whole paying homage to the Thunderhammer, that or the Demon Hammer, sorry, that appears in the in the film as such. Like you know, there's a whole ritual about how they. Take it out, and everybody gets to hold it, as such. Everyone gets to touch it, and it goes back into its, you know, its safety chamber, as such. You know, <laughs> yeah. the the importance of war gear is a, is a big thing to capture in your Death Watch games. I think that sort of having players have to look into the history behind an artifact and, and what that means for their chapter or the chapter it originates from is probably an interesting sort of side storyline. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All
1: right. Just one take anyway. Yeah, All right, yeah. let's uh, let's talk some war gear now ourselves.
0: Review the yeah it is the source of all power.
1: All right, in keeping with our Salamanders theme, for our war gear section, I decided to talk about the single Salamanders weapon, which is included in First Founding, and yep. this is the heavy flamer known as Serta's Breath. Now, it's not a relic. It, you know There are multiple of these. They're just basically named after the master craftsman which first invented them. Uh, so the special thing about these is they use a very unusual fuel mix, which creates a sort of um, chromatic style of flame Uh, and the mechanical rule in the system is that if you are hit by this you have to make a minus 20 willpower test if you fail you have to roll on the shock table as though affected by fear yeah Uh, now the reason I thought this was interesting is because it doesn't call this a fear roll it doesn't say make a fear test or whatever it says roll on the shock table as affected by fear so I wonder if this would be a way that you could actually make the shock effects apply to a, 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 a fellow To
2: Something which is normally immune, immune to fear. fear. I'd it. say you probably could. Yeah. That's the whole point of and, it.
1: And then the question would be, do you do you add the degrees of failure from the willpower test to the shock table the same way you do with a normal fear test? Well, it
2: does say... Well, on the shock table...
1: As they, as they making... As they're affected by fear, so... And then
2: the question comes in, does resistance fear have play an effect in this? Or yeah. is it you bypass as well? Because it isn't a fear
1: test. Fear test, does. no. Because yeah, resistance fear doesn't apply to the shock while it applies to the initial role to resist the fear in the first place, so... Yeah. Yeah, I, I just... I picked this one, A, because it ties this other and B, because it presents a lot of interesting... Questions. Questions and such, yeah. I mean, the, the drawback of the weapon is really... It's supposed to be... It's, it's very heavy and unwieldy as well, so it's got a very low ammo count. Plus, it's And a high weight...
0: <laughs>
1: it looks beautiful, you know. It's it's master craft and sort of stuff, yeah, but, you know. But
2: it shoots out rainbow-coloured fire.
1: Oh, okay, so it's it's uh not not prismatical. Uh, what's the term it uses? It's like it's like um, uh, I think it's like a glow, like a glowing fire, basically. Oh, okay. such, you know, so it's more like a not, not pearlescent. I'm <laughs> coming up with all these really great <laughs> words, but no, it's not the right one I'm looking for. But anyway, it it it's just it doesn't look like regular fire, so yeah. um. But yeah, I just thought it was an interesting item because it had, it gives you that that weird rule question as well about maybe maybe giving Space Marines fear. Yes. Yeah. Okay, let's keep it going.
0: My Lord, the information you requested is now available for your review.
1: Okay, so in order to do preparation for today's review, uh, because I don't currently own a copy of Death Watch Overkill, I went down to my local Games Workshop where they had a copy on the board on the on the table there during work hours, so it was you know bereft of. School children and that sort of thing. And I said, you know, attention, clerk. Please run me through a sample game of yonder board game so I can look at it and uh, review it for my podcast. Yeah. And so he ran me through a couple of turns of uh, of Deathwatch Overkill so I can give you my take on the game. Now someone who's actually had a had a play of it first off. Okay. Uh, so uh, Deathwatch Overkill is a game of uh, Deathwatch Marines against Gene Steeler Cult. Yep. So there is a bit of a backstory to it that, you know, Marines were already sent to investigate this cult and unreturned, And so now they are making their way deeper and deeper into the cult's hive to basically wipe out the um, the, the, few, the few sort of key figures that actually run the cult. So it has a campaign-style play. Uh, the map itself is customizable so that you can sort of... You basically get, I think it's about nine different... Sort of um, uh, adventures, or not adventures? I guess um, sort of individual play boards in the in the main book, uh, in in the campaign book. If you're just going to play a single one shot, then it sort of recommends maybe the first two, uh, the best ones to sort of learn with, as such. Or you can just play through them one after the other. Um, now the interesting things about it. So first off, uh, okay, my, the first thing I did was compare it to games like uh, Betrayal at Kalth and um, even Space Hulk. Because, you know, here you've got Marines versus... You've got a smaller group of Marines versus bigger group of weaker Xenos. Yeah. You know, and so I was looking at what, what what makes... What distinguishes this game from those games that, that already exist as such, you know? Um, now, KALTH had some more customization, but it also had weird, you know, custom dice, whereas this game just works on standard um, uh, regular D6s, uh, you can play this game I think a lot faster and, and in this game there's also some weird tactical elements that don't really come up unless you actually notice how the game actually works uh, so the basic sort of mechanic of it is each turn you've got a, a brood mind turn where the person playing the Gene Steelers has a number of sort of brood cards that are given to them by the scenario they're currently playing which allows them to basically set up ambushes on the board where like you know more figures can arrive from Uh, and they're going to get a constant sort of supply of of figures throughout the game as well Uh, they get to play those first then uh, the uh, the marines move then the the uh, the gene stealers move then the marines attack then the gene stealers attack then the marines attack again so in in this case the marines actually get two attacks to every one attack that the uh, the gene stealers get that being said the gene stealers have a lot more numbers And, and I found that uh, so, Gene the Gene Stealer cult figures basically have one wound. So if they're hit, they're dead. They're removed from the board. They can come back in with future uh, ambush cards. The only cards that actually have more than one wound are the Deathwatch Marines and the the Gene Stealer sort of Lords, the the um, Mag-season. the Magus sort of stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and they basically have two wounds because they have the basic card that represents a figure, and when it gets wounded, you turn it over. Now, one of the things that uh, Marines can do is they can forgo their attack to heal themselves from wounded back to, back to healthy again. And it seemed to me that pretty much every single time it was my second attack, I was spending that turn healing myself from the last round of attacks. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's pretty much... It's a, it's, it may as well call the healing action. Although I suppose if the Steel player was really unlucky and didn't manage to wound enough guys, you could get off a few more attacks in your, in your secondary attack round. Um, what I found interesting about the game was the fact that rather than having conventional like squares or hexes you move through... The game map is broken down into sections, and you can put as many figures as you want in a section, provided they will fit in that section of the board. You yeah. know? It doesn't matter how tightly you bunch them, um, as long as they can get, get in there, you can fit that, that figure in. There's no more room than a figure can't enter that space. It's interesting because range is done with a range ruler. So you've basically got three ranges, and you put you know the range ruler where the figure is, and you put the range ruler where its target is, and you work out what range it's at some of the spaces themselves are actually quite large. So when you move a figure into the space, you've got to be actually quite conscious of where in the space you put it. Because you can put it anywhere in the space when you put it down there, but once it's down in that spot, you can't move around in the space, you know, for for the purposes of shooting. So you might find that, rather so rather than saying the dip range is like two spaces, you might find that there is even a creature, you know, that's three or four spaces away that's still on your range because you put your piece quite far into the space when you first put it down or likewise you might have yourself nicely out of range because even though you're the same number of spaces away you're at the, f- the back of your space and they're at the back of theirs yeah. so you've actually got to be a little bit strategic and tactical about how you actually physically place the models on the map uh, which is in a sort of a nice element I, I quite liked i think that the the game is nice in that you've got a few different scenarios to play through the different brute mind cards give you sort of different things to deal with. The different um, Death Watch Marines have their own different abilities and you change up which ones you potentially use between maps. So there is a, a degree of variation. I think that once you've played all the scenarios, then the replayability is just let's play the same scenario again and see if we get different roles, different. Uh, I'll go a different path, all that sort of stuff. Different
0: tactics. That's right, yeah.
1: yeah. So um, it seems like it's a sort of game that will be easy to bring expansions out for. You know, more, more map options... More adventures, more, you know, Death Watch Marines, more, um, more different types of enemies. More, yeah, that's it, yeah. Whether or not they will, it, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to remember, I, let's go back to the original Space Group. Uh, back, sorry, back to the original Space Hulk. Yeah. Was there any expansions to the original Space yes, Hulk? there, there was. was yeah. yeah. But they there never did any for the re-release, though. Well, so. you see,
2: the thing with Space Hulk was what they'd do is they'd release books of adventures.
1: That's right, yeah, they were too, yeah. yeah. And they'd yeah.
2: show you the different map layouts and things like that and have different enemies that you could use in it. But it wasn't really an expansion the way we know expansions nowadays. We have a box set with models and, and
0: cards. What
1: games. was the, the Games Workshop board game years ago, like literally back when we were working there, that was a fantasy game and after you bought the game you could then buy like a little box that had a new like a new hero Warmer, for the Quest. game. One Quest. was it, yeah. yeah. That's, I, that's I consider- been
2: recently released as... Warhammer yeah. Quest Silver Tower.
1: Now. That's it, yeah. And they, they've done the, the computer game recently as well, yeah. too. So um, I, I consider doing something here like that as well, where you could release, like, here is a um, new marine, or here is a new. Um, here's uh, a
0: Lictor. Yes <laughs> Or
1: you know, here's a group of smaller creatures as a single box set with some extra options, extra brew mine cards, yeah. and a mission regarding this particular thing. You know,
2: yeah,
1: um, that'd be quite marketable, I think. I think so too. Yeah, I mean, look, to be honest, I didn't get to play the full game because, you know, Games Workshop guys are sort of like, I'll give you a, a, the first hits for free, but next, if you want to keep playing, gotta buy the game. Um, <laughs> I, I still haven't, i still have yet to play um, some of the other ones we've picked up in the, in the past. So at least I got a great chance to have it a go there before we actually reviewed it. But yeah, um, yeah I'd say it's worth checking out. You know, and, and the the Death Watch figures are beautiful. Yeah, like like with all the sort of single rule set board games I produced recently. All the figures are completely keyed and slotted so that you can, you've only got one pose but they are awesome figures. Yeah. And you'd be happy to use them in any Death Watch game. There's like, there's like a marine on a bike for example and that sort of stuff. There's, there's some really nice stuff in the in the the box set. So definitely uh, check it out if you're interested in, in sort of faster um, play or you just want to get like a whole bunch of Genesis to the Cult and Death Watch figures as well. It's, yeah. it's a nice game. And it's easy, it's easy and it's pretty fast given that it's all um, regular D6s. No, no, no looking up weird symbols in tables to work out. Everything is to clear To work out the what sheets. the dice do, yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's get going.
0: Okay. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable.
1: Okay, let's do this final discussion. And we've sort of talked about this on an earlier show when one of our listeners asked about life as an Imperial citizen. We, we did talk about the sort of day-to-day life of a space marine. Uh, when you're talking about space marine in a chapter. Yeah. Where literally, I think it was like five minutes a day was personal time. The rest was like weapon drills, training, prayer, meal times, that sort of stuff, you know, and then ma- mandatory half your brain sleeping sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I want to say that's more from the s- scope of a Death Watch game. So a lot of people I've seen who've run Death Watch, I- I've played a few Death Watch games, and pretty much most of them, it's like, okay, we get together... Here is your mission. Go off and do that for our game. We finish the, you know, the game, finish the mission. We handle experience points, and next time we get together, we're off on our next mission again. Yeah. But what about if players want to spend some time actually playing through the day-to-day lives of their marines in the watch fortress? You know, that you decide to create plots where they actually want to do things like research or you know investigate things or or establish connections or that sort of thing. How would you see doing I guess the day to day day to day life of a Marine in the Death Watch different from doing day to day life of a character in, say, Dark Heresy or
2: Okay. I, I think one of the first things you have to think about is what chapters are the Marines from. Yeah. A, a space wolf is gonna spend his downtime in a very different way from a you know, really puritanical ultramarine. Mm. You know? Um but that said the fact that most of the time, normally, Marines only deal with their own chapters. Yeah. Here they're surrounded by other people, and that same puritanical ultramarine might start to get a liking for the way that the Space Wolf yeah, spends that, his downtime. that's what I'm
1: thinking. Like, you know, if, if, the, if the Space Wolf's constantly saying, you know, come to the mead hall and drink, you know, and tell me stories of your... Of, of your, your exploits, yeah. It, yeah, is the ultimate going to go, no, I must sit here and read the Codex of Stardust again? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's it. And I think that sort of that breadth of um, experience is better for the characters as well, and it makes it a bit more fun. Yeah. Um. you've also got to remember there are competitions and things going on all the time as well. You know, they might have some sort of tournament type thing in the Death Watch itself, which you can role play through as well. It doesn't have to be go out do missions all the time.
0: Yeah,
2: there really could be something like, oh, we're we're, we're having a an archery contest. Marines don't use bows, but you know what? We're going to have an archery. They contest. They can use any
1: weapon they want to use. Exactly.
2: We're going to see who is the best person. We're going to send you outside, just outside the, the the fortress. You're going to get the equipment. You're going to make your own bow. You're going to come back here, and you're going to shoot some apples off of people's heads.
1: <laughs> I guess that there is an owens upon the GM to basically come up with storyline which is tied to the watch fortress. Yeah, you know, either either because it relates back to stuff that's been covered in the missions, like you know the whole thing of during a mission, some something is discovered which calls the loyalty of a particular NPC into question yep. and do the players use the opportunity while they're back at the Watch Fortress to further investigate the NPC and follow them or ask others what they might know about it, you know, or is there an NPC that is a well-liked NPC that asks the players to do something for them um, while on a mission and when they come back they get to sort of they get the reward of going back to the NPC and, and getting their thanks and whatever whatever it is they offer them for doing that
0: Yeah,
1: um, it, it could also be the fact that
2: something has happened in the mission and they want to see where it goes i mean it's okay just turning up and going okay watch captain what are you going to give us to do mm. but there is an in- minor investigation side of things as well you, you know you, you kill the enemy bad guys but it was doing something at the time and you want to find out what it was actually doing go back to the watch fortress do a little bit of research find out and then go to your watch captain and say hey this is what we think needs to be done this is the follow-on thing and that's the difference between just being a lowly, pleb soldier and actually being someone who wants to be an officer, especially yeah. in the Space Marines.
1: In fact, even if you are the sort of person that runs a game where you're just doing sort of like, this is the mission from start to go, that's my session, try to make it so that the last thing you do in your session is the debrief scene. Yeah. That way, you start with an with an interaction scene in the briefing and you end with an interaction scene in the debriefing. You know? Too many people, and look, I did it exactly myself on um, Monday with the Dark Heresy game, said, okay, Here's the big final combat. You've won the combat. Okay, guys, that's all we've got time for tonight. Your players, uh, you find some evidence and, okay, we'll, we'll deal with this next session as such. You know, Try to make enough time in your session to make sure that you finish off with some inter-character and, in, and character-to-NPC interaction, because that really does help to build the the storyline a lot more than just you know combat's over, fade to black sort of thing. Yeah. yeah I mean, is that what you, you found that in your own game? Oh, kind of yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah.
2: And it and also gives the players a chance to embellish their story if they are so, um,
0: <laughs>
2: it, you know, not that that's a very marine thing to do, but they, they may wish to embellish the story somewhat.
1: Yeah. I'm, su- I'm sure there's marines out there that like to embellish the story. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, <laughs> looking at the Space Yeah, Yeah, what about the, the um, Empress children? Yeah. yeah. Actually, probably not so much in the Death Watch. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean... There, it is a different style of character to your other characters, but I think it's important that you will get some character development by sort of seeing and playing out what it is that they will actually do. Well,
2: well that's it. I mean, at the end of the day, they are still people. They're, yes, genetically engineered, psycho-indoctrinated and, and heavily brainwashed, but they are still people and they do still have, you know, needs
0: yeah.
2: and things that
1: they want to do and
2: yeah. hobbies, maybe. <laughs>
1: And this thing is that they do form bonds of friendship. Yeah. yeah among, especially in the Death Watch. I mean, the Death Watch is such an unusual circumstance for them because they're so used to being with a group of people who all have the same manner of thinking because of that psycho Yeah. And now they are in a group where there are different styles and different ways of and life it. and you know, different beliefs about what works well or not. You know, they, I mean, even just play fighting. I mean, if, if your group's, you know, sort of combat-obsessed. And let them do some trials against each other as such, with practice weapons as such. Practice weapons.
2: Wrestling, yeah. wrestling practice. They can get their grappling on.
1: <laughs> no one grapples in RPGs. <laughs> it's, a, it's a recipe for disasters. It's a recipe for spending the next ten minutes looking back and forth through the pages of the book, trying to figure out what happens next. Yeah. when well, someone says you know what I forget it. I'll just punch them instead <laughs> so just no wrestling just stick with punching and no, no wrestling <laughs> play. have
2: a wrestling <laughs> match everyone will know the grappling rules by the
1: end of the wrestling match yeah, I just can't imagine a marine tapping out <laughs> they just, they'd be like locked in an eternal grapple never able to actually separate and get on with their mission now because no one wants to lose no one wants to tap out yeah, that's right they know no fear yeah <laughs> well,
2: they go to a pinning situation
1: then. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Score
2: enough successes to pin the opponent.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is the thing is that, that, that you can have these sort of fun scenes and, and play this out by, by going to the, and, and it. And it does create... It, you go from being an armoured you know, one-dimensional killing machine to a uh, a character that is interesting to sort of think, what are they going to do next? You know, yeah. what, 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 what zany adventures will they have next time we return to base? And your and you players will look forward to the mission downtime as well if you can actually create some interesting stuff that happens there, yeah yeah you know, certainly with it as a GM start by adding plot to the middle of it, but you'll actually find that players once once they've seen plot in the the downtime stuff they'll want to keep doing more downtime stuff, even just to sort of explore their characters a bit more as well yeah yeah don't don't, don't if you're going to just do mission by mission it's just just some advice on part anyway that we're unqualified to give will anyway, so I think we're qualified to get. <laughs> Right. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to closing up the show.
0: All astropaths to the choir chamber. Message incoming.
1: So normally it's part of the show. We normally talk about any sort of feedback or comments that we've received. No new um, reviews this time, but if you do enjoy the show, please remember to leave a review for us on iTunes. We do have one comment though on Facebook, and this came from Hugh. Uh, he first off pointed out an error in our last show. See, we do make some errors sometimes, Mike, where I mentioned that the Soul Reaver in the book, The Soul Reaver is defined as a Xenos ship, but although the picture shows it's being Eldar, it's not clear. I need to point out, it does actually specify, is a Void Stalker class LR quarter ship, uh, and uh, can actually uh, share other LR parts as well if you're doing modifications to it, if you somehow manage to keep it beyond the scope of the adventure, which is not what's intended, but... No, yeah. I probably wouldn't want to. <laughs> exactly. Um, he also asked a question about Sol Reaver, uh, asking whether we think that you could use uh, the Darkkin Supplement and Sol Reaver of the Book in order to run an all-Dark Eldar game?
2: I think you could. I don't think you could run a long campaign of it because there's no profit factor system. Yep. And really, it would be one of those games, I feel, that would have a very set
1: beginning and end. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I guess going back to basics, I think there's enough character variation between the initial base classes and the various advanced classes that you could create, you know, three, four, five interestingly different enough characters in order to do it. I guess that looking at... um, I think that's the reason I think about playing Xenos in a game is a lot of Xenos have, like, a a defining point about them as such, you know. So, like, the, the orcs are all sort of, you know... You know, ha, ah, war and that sort of stuff, and, and the uh, Dark Elder are sort of lithe and, and pain-inflicting as such. And is there a, a lot of scope for variation that you can create a group of distinct personalities? I mean, if I was going to create, if I was making a group of, so, say, say I just want a con game. In my con game, I want to be all 40k orcs. Um, okay, so how do I distinguish my five orcs for this con game from each other as such, other than just names? You know, I've got to try and think of personality traits, you know, skill focuses, things that they do differently, you know, so there yeah. might be a, one mech boy, you know, one sort of looter or that sort of stuff, you know. Mech boy, one, one, pain a, a, boy, weird boy. A, a boy, snaz boy whatever that sort of stuff, you know. Or, um, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, a grot once, herder. <laughs> once again, with, with the Dark Elder, I guess, you've got to sort of have a group which is... knows enough about the source material and the Dark Elder to create a group of four to five distinct individuals that all contribute their own different thing to the group mechanic. Yeah. Um, certainly it's one of the things I've run across in games in the past is where you've got a group of overly generic characters. And this happens a little bit, I think in rogue trader, is that there's enough because Trader is a trader situation where you've got eight basic careers and they wanted to have enough sort of variation that you could have any, say four, for example, and still have all the key skills in your group mix. There is a lot of crossover. Yeah. Um, whereas in this one I think that you know, it would specific... be an
2: exceptionally large amount of crossover
1: yeah that's it because you only got like a two or three base career classes they offer, which you can expand once again through the advanced careers but still you've got a sort of the variation will come from the difference in the way you portray the character more so than the stats that are on the page Yeah, uh, but I think certainly using these books you cannot and I would certainly agree that you could use the um, the, the setting of the Soul Reaver campaign as a jumping off point for a, a Dark Elder I think but as you say I think that it's with any evil game. Like I have run evil games before, like Evil D and D that sort of stuff, or we've done like Star Wars, Imperial games and such. They, they tend to be sort of like for a good time, not for a long time. Yeah. You know, Black Crusade has a very clear end game. You know, you, you get into the okay, we, we we yeah, hit apotheosis or we get turned into chaos spawn and then we go on a Black Crusade. Um, you know, it's not just a sandbox, sandbox, sandbox and we're done. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a very clear end game in the mind. I think you never wanna do the same thing with a Dark Eldar game. Because it really is, yeah. You just it, it, if anyway. you don't have a
2: set focus for the end point, people yeah. get very easily distracted on just going out and doing evil things.
1: That's it. And, and when when your character is an evil character, and you're thinking, I need to do some more character development, people tend to go, I need to be more evil. <laughs> and it just becomes that. It becomes like a game of who can be the most abased person in your group. Yeah. You know, that's not character development. That's just like you know. <laughs> <laughs> Being dodgy, yeah, I don't know. So yes, you could do it, but yeah, have a clear like set out. We're going to play a dark elder game, and our goal is we want to take over this, you know, this the, area. We become next, an the nexus in the yeah. in, in the book as such. You know, we want to you know go through the social hierarchies to get the backing. To take this over, that sort of stuff. I think that's what you want to do with a Dark Eldar game. Yeah. Uh, using it this other one. But yeah, certainly quite possible. Okay. Okay, so if you do want to contact us, there's many ways to do it. Our website, which is still mostly up, is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. Uh, we tweet through at grimdartpodcast. And our email is show at uh, the voicemail link on the website is currently down because the website is currently mostly down. As is the dry Through RPG affiliate link. So, still buy your books and dry through RPG. You still support the developers anyway. Just not supporting us right now. But yeah. uh, we'll get it fixed up eventually. Um, okay. Next episode is number sixty-nine. Jokes. I'm sure we made at some point. It is a Black Crusade episode, which means more jokes to be made. Uh, Mike was already saying we need to do slash-based stuff, but I'm like, come on, man. how how, how far in the gutter is your mind? Um, Far enough yeah, that's it. Uh, I've still got to make some more notes for next episode the only thing I've got locked in for sure is we're talking about the Night Lord Space Marine okay. which is a, I think a very cool thing to talk about too so um, thank you for listening tonight it's been a, a bit of a shorter show unfortunately I have to fly overseas tomorrow once again so I've had to cut it a bit short but uh, hopefully you still got something from it it's always fun doing death watch shows because it's sort of the system that we have the least experience with playing um, and, and I guess the least engagement with but I uh, still enjoy doing them anyway, so yeah. uh, hopefully you took something from it. And I certainly took from this show that next time I make a Marine Army, I'm definitely making Salamanders because they are cooler than I at first thought. Yes. Right. <laughs> so we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much, and thank you, Mike. No problem. Thank you very much. This podcast is not endorsed by or if dead with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, <laughs> Dark Heresy, Road Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Earn the War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing, Inc. All other materials are trademarked and or copyrighted by their respective owners. All original content is copyrighted of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mebios Alley, Music.mebio.com